This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by GE, helping drive the energy transition through a decade of action and innovating the energy solutions of the future. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz and Duke Energy CEO Lynn Good join the Post to discuss how we can help meet America's future energy needs. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at the Post. Today we're going to be talking about energy and how to reduce our carbon footprint even as we keep our economy strong. We're going to be joined in a few minutes by one of the leaders of the industry, but we want to begin today uh, in a conversation with one of the smartest people in the country about energy issues, former Energy Secretary Ernie Moniz. Uh, Ernie, welcome to Washington Post Live. It's great to have you. Thank you. Good to see you again, David, after this COVID uh, house arrest. <laughs> the house arrest, I, I hope, is ending, and it's, it's, it's great to see you. So, uh, Ernie, let's start by talking about this week's big news, the announcement yesterday by the Biden administration that they're going to be uh, uh, introducing a project to produce 30 million gigawatts from offshore wind that would power 10 million homes. Yeah, in the story that we, we published, cut 78 million metric tons of CO2 emissions. Tell us how big a deal this is in your judgment in terms of the overall uh, problem uh, of climate change uh, and whether you think it's replicable in, in, other, in other sites and areas. Uh, David, just, just to get the numbers uh, there, it's uh, 30 gigawatts uh, of, of, of offshore wind uh, ah. uh, in yeah, no, it's okay. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, it, it, it's a very, very, it's an, a massive project. Uh, when you figure, uh, let, let's take uh, a typical offshore uh, wind turbine at, um, say, 10 megawatts, which is very, very uh, large. Uh, you, you, you can see that uh, you need 100 of those for one gigawatt, uh, and therefore, uh, you know, thousands uh, being talked about here. Uh, there are issues of uh, how you will, not only how you will put those in the water, but how you bring the electricity to shore, uh, how you manage the dock infrastructure uh, you'll need to service, to develop and service these turbines. Uh, but it has to happen because particularly here in the Northeast, you know, we don't have a lot of options to be perfectly honest. Uh, we are going to need to electrify a lot of our uh, a lot of our uh, economy, uh, and here in the Northeast, particularly uh, bluntly, if we're not going to allow nuclear power plants, modern nuclear power plants to be built, for example, we are not well positioned for capturing CO2 and and burying it underground. So offshore is one of the few places where we can go, and it's got to be very very large, as was this announcement. So let me ask you the common sense uh, question that people sometimes have about uh, both wind and solar projects, which is what happens when the wind isn't blowing? What happens when the sun isn't shine, shining? How do you keep make these things sustainable and viable uh, when you have uh, uncertainty of, of, of supply, as, as it were? And maybe you could talk about batteries and whether battery technology is the solution to this problem. Mm -hmm. The... Um... The issue of uh, variability of wind and solar is certainly a very, very big one. 
Uh, and um, but let me distinguish between onshore and offshore in the sense that uh, it, it is the resource is certainly somewhat more steady uh, when you go when you go to the offshore environment and have these very very massive tall wind turbines. But still, it's an issue. Uh, if I uh, in fact put some numbers in a, in a sense behind it, uh, we've looked at. Um, let's say Texas, uh, uh, which has been in the news last month. Uh, Texas has the largest wind deployment in the country. Uh, we looked for one year, uh, hour by hour, uh, and what we found was surprising that 90 days out, out of the year, roughly, Texas had no wind in the state. Uh, it had no wind for nine consecutive days. So uh, clearly, you have to have backup. Batteries. Uh, will, in my view, never be the solution for those kinds of long durations. Batteries will solve the intraday storage issues, but we still need in innovation uh, to get uh, economic uh, long long duration storage. Uh, it's it, it's it's quite a big deal. So let me ask you, you and I have been talking about energy issues for some years now. I can remember coming to the events you would host uh, in Washington to show off uh, new technologies. What do you think are the energy industry's top priorities now in, in terms of technology, innovation, uh, finding ways to adapt to a world where climate change seems to be moving faster even than we, than we, than we feared? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, um, we should look at different parts of the industry. Uh, there's no doubt that the electricity sector is the lead horse uh, in uh, in decarbonization. Uh, the uh, the investor-owned utilities uh, are heading towards 50% reductions of emissions uh, uh, in this in this decade, for example, uh, and are prepared to pick up the pace uh, even more in response to the president's uh, challenges. So once you get the grid decarbonized, as I mentioned earlier in the, for the Northeast, then the next job is to electrify as much as possible of the rest of the economy. Light duty vehicles, electric vehicles are, are an obvious thing uh, going forward. But we also know that, uh, I think we know, that we will need some sort of a fuel uh, to complement uh, the electricity. So here's a picture. Electricity, wind, solar, some other renewables, uh, hydro when you when you have it. Hopefully, uh, in my view, some nuclear, some carbon capture and sequestration, especially from natural gas plants, uh, will go a long way uh, on the electricity side. However, when you have a polar vortex, we could run the movie again in Texas uh, in uh, last month, and of course. 10 years ago as well, uh, uh, you're going to need some sort of a fuel as a backup there. Now, for a while, that's going to be natural gas. But I could see as one scenario, um, uh, and there, there'll be multiple contributors, but one scenario, a dominant one, could be that in some sense, natural gas evolves into hydrogen. Uh, hydrogen can play that role uh, of a fuel. Uh, it can provide, uh, you can store a lot, a lot of energy for a long time, even for seasons. 
so it's that mix of electricity and fuels that will be required. In terms of the industry, as I've already said, the electric, the electric utility industry is evolving and is evolving quite rapidly. In fact, it, uh, many don't realize that almost 30 of the large utilities in the United States have already pledged to go to net zero emissions uh, by mid-century. And as I say, they may accelerate that. But what about the oil and gas uh, companies, for example? They uh, have lagged, I would say, uh, the uh, electricity sector. Well, if you think about carbon capture and sequestration, like removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and the upper layers of the ocean by various methods, all of those involve the skill sets of the oil and gas companies. So I think that the oil and gas companies need to pick up the pace in terms of evolving their business model uh, uh, over the next 10, 20 years uh, to advance those kinds of technologies as the part of the low carbon future, where again, they will play a, a very, very major role. That's all part of coalition building, getting everybody, everybody engaged in pointing in the same direction. So let's talk about about that issue, really the politics of energy transformation. President Biden has set the ambitious goal, I, I hope you'd say it's ambitious, of net zero uh, emissions by, by 2050. I want to ask you, first, do you think that's realistic? And second, to talk a little bit about the politics of that transformation, what has to be done to make it acceptable, palatable, something that's going to work on the ground, not just to in our in our theoretical models well it's obviously a very ambitious goal but we also view it as a, as an essential goal because we're seeing uh, how uh, the extremes of weather uh, already are are hitting us uh, and warming global warming uh, continues uh, uh, i think there's been a major shift uh, in the politics david uh, i would go back to the uh, campaign the, the election campaign, uh, I don't think it is noted often enough that the that the, now the president, President Biden, uh, and of course the Democratic Party as a whole, they made the calculation correctly that for the first time, climate was a political winning issue in the in the campaign. And I think there's no doubt that that that, that was the case. That's a big shift. The public is ready for this. The public wants it. Now, to get to net zero, it will be tough. And one of the areas that we have advocated for very strongly as part of the solution is what are called negative carbon technologies. In fact, it's almost a tautology. If you're going to go to net zero and eventually to net negative, well, you have to have negative carbon technologies. Uh, so that's, again, removing historically emitted CO2 from the atmosphere and the upper, upper layers of the ocean. But I do want to caution that one not jump to the conclusion that removing CO2 from the atmosphere is only what's called direct air capture, where you literally just suck the CO2 uh, out of the air uh, and then uh, use it or bury it. Uh, very expensive uh, today, for sure. Uh, that's one method, 
but there are other methods involving uh, terrestrial solutions. Of course, planting trees is one, but you can also modify plants to have very deep root systems. You can accelerate mineralization of CO2, turning it into uh, a solid. Uh, and, and as I said, you can also work on the oceans to try to make them more, less acidic, uh, more alkaline uh, uh, going forward. So for that, we say we need still about a $10 billion research development and demonstration agenda in this decade so that we can have those solutions at reasonable cost, say by, by 2030, to start deploying them at scale. I think that's how we meet the net zero uh, goal technically. Politically, the, uh, uh, it's about coalition building. I've said that many times. And it's about recognizing that there's no one size fits all solution for all regions of our country, let alone for all countries in the world. So regional focus on solutions, coalition building, that means having the energy companies of today, along with entrepreneurs, be part of the solution. Otherwise, you get headwinds. And very importantly, we have to get serious about not leaving behind workers and communities. Uh, stranded workers and stranded communities are another way of slowing the pace. Uh, and I think it is extremely interesting, uh, even in these, in, in, even in the short period of the Biden administration, to see uh, labor, uh, organized labor, coming forward so strongly in support of these programs, and of course uh, the jobs that that they will create. So I think you know, bringing together again labor and business and environmental groups, financial institutions. Uh, religious and military leaders, uh, we we could go on. Uh, that's that's the winning the 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 winning combination. Uh, and I might say that uh, the administration will be advancing uh, these kinds of solutions, this kind of coalition building, in other ways which get less attention. For example, I think it's very clear that the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, under uh, Gary Gensler. Uh, uh, will strongly up the ante on, co on corporate disclosure of climate risk. That will in turn resonate with the uh, shareholder financial institution uh, ESG requirements on corporate America. So I think corporate America is going to change dramatically just in the next few years in terms of how it is internalizing uh, climate risks and how shareholders evaluate uh, companies in that context. A lot of change is going to happen. That's fascinating, uh, especially your discussion of the uh, carbon negative technologies that would actually extract carbon. I want to ask you about a, a simple um, uh, argument that's often made about accelerating the transition away from fossil fuels, and that is that we need a carbon tax. That's the, the simplest a clearest way to, 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 to get this process uh, moving faster. Do you, th do you think that's a good idea? And, and also, maybe, maybe more at the point, do you think uh, President Biden and his team are ready to embrace it? 
Well, first of all, uh, I think when one talks about a, a price uh, on carbon emissions, uh, we can call it a tax uh, for simplicity's sake. Uh, the uh, uh, sure, look, obviously the economists uh, all say that uh, this is a way of uh, of cutting down on what you don't want, namely emissions. Uh, however, I, I want to emphasize, David, that um, just talking about a tax in isolation uh, is not sufficient. Uh, we have to talk about. Let's say we have a tax. Uh, what do you do with the funds? But the, you know, the the late George Schultz passed away only uh, uh, only weeks ago. Uh, was an advocate, for example, for a tax, but the tax was combined in his proposal with a dividend, uh, a uniform dividend that went out to everybody. Uh, and the important point there is that is socially progressive. Those with uh, those on the lower end of the income scale are going to come out net ahead. Uh, it also uh, he also talked about uh, then removing some of the regulations and incentives uh, uh, that maybe would not be needed if there was a carbon price. He also talked about the need, which the Europeans are pushing hard on, to have some kind of border adjustment uh, for carbon content of of imports. Uh, uh, in order to, in order to try to level the playing field and prevent the leakage of jobs and industry. So my point really is whether you take that proposal in all of its detail or not, it really has to be looked at as just more than just a tax. What do you do with it? How do you address uh, the, the 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 progressive nature that I think uh, that I think we need? Now, in terms of the current political environment, I think it's pretty clear uh, that where we are heading right now is rather than a tax, is a clean, what's called a clean energy standard. One version of it would be very analogous to the renewable portfolio standards that many states have, you know, thou shalt generate uh, the following fraction of your electricity uh, from uh, carbon-free uh, technologies. In this case, uh, it's not just renewables, it's any technology, which is a, a very good development, technology neutral. Uh, so there could be a federal law requiring, uh, let's say, all utilities to generate some percentage uh, by, by zero carbon. Uh, that seems to be the politically favored direction now for the electricity sector, where it's fairly easy to at least imagine how you would carry out that program. However, uh, I think that when you go to the economy as a whole, which of course we must do, these, these uh, commitments at mid-century for net zero is not just the electricity sector, uh, which is just about a quarter of emissions. Uh, it's about the entire economy, uh, transportation, uh, industry, uh, agriculture, buildings, and all the like. I think that uh, there uh, you're going to you're going to have to move beyond the sectoral approach of a clean energy standard and probably go to something like a tax. But that's so, I think that's going to be stage two. <laughs> Uh, Energy Secretary Ernie Moniz, uh, it's just great to talk to you. I feel I could talk to you all afternoon about this.
and I hope we'll have that chance soon. I just want to thank you for joining us on Washington Post Live and sharing some of these really interesting uh, cutting edge ideas about how to get to uh, a, a safer, sustainable world. Thank you, Ernie. Thank you, Dave. I'll be back uh, with an industry leader in a few moments. Stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Jean Meserve. General Electric has been in the energy business for 100 years, and along with its customers, GE generates one-third of the world's power. Given that fact, I'm pleased to be joined today by Scott Strazik, CEO of GE Gas Power, and Vic Abate, Chief Technology Officer at GE, to discuss the energy transition. Um, Scott, let me start with you. Um, climate change is blamed for the freeze last month in Texas that knocked out power to more than a million people. With the frequency of extreme weather-related events expected to increase, do you think that government, the public, and industry, including your own business, are taking climate change with enough urgency? Thanks, Jean. Considering the urgency of the challenge in front of us, we can do more faster now need to. And it starts with the power sector. The reality is the power sector represents about a 40% of the carbon emissions in the world today. At the exact time the world is trying to electrify to decarbonize multiple industries, think automobiles, think home heating. So if in parallel to that, we're not decarbonizing the power sector that's creating the electricity, we're not gonna get the benefit as we electrify these other industries that the world needs. This is why inside GE, we are so focused on a decade of action with three key pillars. The first, grow renewables as fast as the world can afford. The second, smartly invest in gas as a force multiplier to grow wind and solar while using the scale of gas to rapidly retire coal. And third, make smart investments in the grid to best utilize the system between variable, zero carbon renewables and the firming of gas. Vic, given the need for ambitious action and quick action, why not focus even more on renewables? No, thanks, Gene, and uh, looking forward to our discussion. You know, to best answer your question, I, I think it's important to put the power system into context, right? The grid has been around for over 100 years, and the power industry has built a system that provides power to more than 6 billion people. So massive power sector, and it's still expected to grow an additional 40% between now and 2050. Now, regarding renewables, wind and solar have been the fastest growing power generation technology over the past decade. And they make up more than half of all new power gen installs today. And with offshore wind technology advancements like GE's Haliot X turbine, the world's most powerful offshore wind turbine, we're seeing offshore wind growth, not only globally, but now in the US, in places like Vineyard Wind in Massachusetts. So even with the tremendous progress that I just described in more than $2 trillion of investment in renewables, wind and solar today still only account for 9% of the global electricity demand. And as our research center has modeled future scenarios, and I'm at the center here today, we see a renewables only focus scenario as leaving a gap in the world's electricity demand in 2050 of more than 30%. And as Scott uh, just mentioned, other sectors like transportation and heating are counting on the electrical sector to grow on their journey to decarbonize. So 
This is why we believe a broader portfolio of energy technologies and decarbonization solutions are required. We see more nuclear, more gas, and more renewables for decades to come. Scott, gas you mentioned and Vic just mentioned as part of the transition, but it's a fossil fuel. It contributes to CO2 emissions. Gene, the reality today with gas is it is not a zero carbon solution. But as Vic just outlined, we haven't yet built a roadmap to zero in the power sector. That said, gas is the cleanest fossil fuel alternative and the most flexible fossil fuel alternative to support this transition. If I give two levels of detail, the first is a gas plant on average is 50 to 65% less carbon intensive than coal when the world still generates a third of its power from coal. If we look at the US, the US since 2007 has reduced emissions from the power sector by about 33%. The biggest single contributor to that emissions reduction, coal to gas switching. Now, a dollar invested in gas today is not a dollar invested in carbon forever. The reality is there's multiple technology pathways with gas to zero, whether that be hydrogen or carbon capture. So the magic here is how we use the gas technology this decade to rapidly accelerate the decarbonization of the power sector while simultaneously making investments in gas on its pathway to zero. Vic, the Biden administration this week is unveiling its infrastructure plan. What would you like to see in terms of upgrades to the electrical grid? Yeah, Gene, you know, grid, when I think of the grid, um, very important. I think of a system of systems, really from generation to transmission to consumption. And all three of these need to work together seamlessly. And what we recently learned from Texas is that when the grid doesn't behave this way, the impact on society, on families, and economies is very, very serious, right? And so I raise this as it clearly validates the need to invest and to innovate and deploy advanced grid technologies as part of the energy transition. And with the advancements we've seen in digital technologies, power electronics, controls, and the internet of things, right, across all the industries, um, we're seeing this continue to, to grow. The benefit of modernizing and adopting these latest technologies to the grid is paramount. And so we see you know, more opportunity to drive renewables, greater resilience, and really a more robust path for decarbonization with the administration's plan to invest in the grid. Scott, we're almost out of time, but quickly, are there additionally some policy changes you'd like to see out of Washington? On policy, we need to be focused on outcomes, both emissions outcomes and economics. And if I give three quick examples, the technology advancement with offshore is rapid, we need a policy framework in the US to benefit from this advanced technology. We talked a lot about gas. With that, we need to strictly regulate methane with technology that exists today, while also incentivizing for innovation, whether that be hydrogen, carbon capture, or advanced nuclear on this country's path to zero. Scott Strazek, Vicka Bate, thank you both for joining us here today. I'll now hand it back to the Washington Post. And now, Back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at The Post, and I'm pleased to continue our program uh, with Lynn Good, who is the chief executive of one of the nation's largest power producers, Duke Energy. Lynn, welcome uh, to Washington Post Live. Thank you, David. Very good to be here. So let me just ask you about how Duke Energy has been proceeding 
uh, in trying to reduce its own uh, carbon emissions. In that little video, we saw that you've uh, reduced the carbon emissions by 39%, almost 40%. Uh, I've read that you've retired 51 coal-fired uh, plants since 2005. Presumably for, for Duke, that's just the beginning. And I'd be grateful if you'd lay out for us what you see ahead for your company in terms of additional continuing actions. Sure, and David, thank you. You know, this we've been on a journey for a decade uh, reducing carbon emissions. And for the year 2020, our emissions are down 40%. It's the result of retiring coal, as you mentioned. It's also adding renewables. North Carolina, one of the largest states in which we operate, is third in the nation in installed solar capacity. So there's been a lot of investment in renewables. And natural gas has played a role in the progress that we've made as well. And so as we look forward, our commitment is to lower carbon emissions by at least 50% by 2030. It'll be slightly higher in some of our states, uh, given the geography and the nature of resources and then also to get to net zero by 2050. We have a clear line of sight on how to get there by 2030 to the goal that we've established. It's more retirement of coal, it's more renewables, it's more battery storage, it's some natural gas to uh, maintain reliability. And then as we get into the 2030s and 2040s, much like your conversation with Secretary Muniz, we see the need for new technologies. We see the need for technologies that are dispatchable yet without carbon. And so we are strong advocates for investment in R&D. We're working closely with the national labs. We're piloting technologies as they become available. So I'm talking about advanced nuclear. I'm talking about hydrogen, carbon capture, longer duration storage. And I think if we put all of these things together and work uh, to, uh, to not only make progress in the near term with the technologies we have, but invest in those technologies that we're going to need in the future, that we can achieve these goals. Let me ask you the basic uh, political question that our whole country uh, struggles with as we think about this transition. Duke Energy historically is a huge consumer of coal. Uh, you, you've been a, a big consumer of natural gas as well. What do you say to people in states where uh, coal extraction and natural gas production are huge industries? What do we say to those people as, as they look at this future and they just get scared? They say, there goes my job, there goes my livelihood. How do we reassure them that they're not going to be big losers in this transition? David, it's a really good question and one that we have spent a lot of time with, because if you think about a company that's retired 51 coal units, we've been in this conversation with our states for some time. And what we find is to have an honest conversation about the need to upgrade the infrastructure that our customers, our communities, our policymakers are demanding uh, reduction in carbon. We believe deeply in reduction in carbon. And if you can reach agreement on the pace and the replacement generation and engage those communities and how investments can be continued, whether it's in replacement generation in those communities, whether it's investment in community colleges for workforce development, you have opportunities to bring people together and establish a path. And I would say to you, a lot of discussion going on now at the federal level, but this discussion has been going on at the state level for some time, specific community discussions on how we can make this transition. And we had an example here in the Carolinas with one of our communities where we needed to retire coal, wanted to retire coal, and working with a coalition of uh, community leaders and policymakers, we were able to develop a plan 
that retired coal, made an investment in natural gas, an investment in solar, an investment in battery storage, and then worked with the community on energy efficiency and demand response, the way they could manage their energy usage in a way that would lessen the need for additional resources in the future. We need to replicate that kind of community engagement over and over and over as we go through this transformation because I think it's that uh, coalition building that's going to make it successful on the ground, which is actually what has to happen in order for us to make progress. You know, we say often that all politics is local, and that's probably true with energy politics as well. I'm imagining that those community meetings. Let me just ask you to stand back, uh, Lynn, for, for a minute. Um, Duke Energy is a, is a leader in, in your industry, but uh, honestly, how do you think the energy industry is doing as a whole in making this transition? Sometimes you get the, f the feeling that they're leading companies that are moving forward, others that are dragging their feet. What, what, what's your assessment of your, of your industry overall? I'm very proud, David, of the progress our industry has made. If you think about carbon reduction at Duke Energy at 40% from 2005, and for the energy industry as a whole, it's between 30 and 35%. Those numbers may not mean much, but they are greater reductions than what would have been required under the Clean Power Plan that President Obama put forward. And with our original commitment to Paris in 2025, those reductions are greater than that pathway as well. So I do believe a lot of great work has been going on. I'm not sure it's fully recognized. Uh, and I think as the urgency of this conversation and the depth of the conversation continues, there's always an inclination to go faster and do more. But I feel like as an industry, and I feel this way about Duke, we come to this conversation not only with a demonstrated track record, but with having done our homework on what we think is going to be necessary to get to 2030 and 2040. And that makes for the ingredients of bringing people together to make real progress. And so that's where my optimism lies. And Ed, let me ask you the same question I asked uh, Secretary Moniz. What's your feeling about a carbon tax or a price on uh, carbon emissions uh, as opposed to what I thought I heard Secretary Moniz saying was more likely, which is a regulatory approach, just some kind of regulatory mandate uh, about what you can and can't emit? What would you like to see? I think, David, the, uh, the devil is in the details on all of these policies. So a clean energy standard could also be a legislative solution, just like a carbon tax. You may remember back you know, 15 years ago, we were talking about cap and trade. I think regulation will likely uh, be focused more on perhaps coal and natural gas. But stepping back from this, what we are looking for is durable public policy that is market-based, that recognizes cost-effectiveness, and also that provides some incentives around research and development. And if I go even a bit deeper, I would say, it should be a policy that incents the transition of generation. It needs to speak about nuclear. It should speak about the role of natural gas. It should talk about permitting and infrastructure building. And I think about the expansion of the grid and other things necessary to make progress. We need to permit infrastructure and often to build transmission or gas infrastructure it takes longer to permit than it does to build and then really building on the conversation that secretary muniz has it also needs to recognize we don't have all the technologies today that we need and so how are we going to incent bringing those technologies to market more quickly so the progress can be made more quickly 
So I think those are the kind of underpinnings of what public policy is necessary to move forward, and it can take a variety of forms. I think what's important is we need to get at the table working together, and we certainly are anxious and engaged with the administration and the agencies to talk about what it will take. And those policies uh, can be real enablers, and the durability of them makes it possible to attract capital to make the progress that we're all counting on. To take the example, what's probably most vivid in, in our viewers' mi minds, the complete mess with the grid in Texas when they had the temperatures plummet, just walk us through the, the basics of, of how that happened. Obviously, it was severe cold weather in, in sure. part, but there are also problems with Texas's non-connection to, to, to national grids. I think the simplest way to put this uh, to you is to ask, was this a preventable crisis? And what should be done by Texas and other states that have similar potential problems to make sure nothing is as horrendous as that happens again? You know, David, it's an opportunity uh, for all of us to sit back and reflect on that situation. I think for Duke Energy and the customers that count on Duke, we are doing just that, looking at lessons learned. It was an extreme weather event you know, something like eight to 10 degrees below historic averages. So weatherization of equipment from renewables to nuclear to natural gas all became an issue. I think market structure became an issue, lack of import capability. So there were a number of things that came together. And as I look at the opportunities um, that we will be exploring at Duke, we'll continue to look at whether the weatherization is adequate we suffered through the polar vortex and the geographies that we serve. We also have a reminder every season with hurricanes, I serve coastal regions, and we take every one of these weather events to really evaluate, is there more investment necessary to harden, to create resiliency capability? We have also invested in dual fuel capability and diverse resources so that if there is a disruption in gas supply or something like that, we have other sources that we can go to I think those will also be closely evaluated. Each of my states has also asked for a specific briefing. They will look again at whether or not there's adequate reserve capacity. In the event something goes wrong, do we have assets standing by, ready to go uh, in the event of extreme conditions? I think overall, David, what this has done is it's elevated the conversation around reliability, which I believe is particularly important. When we talk about the scale of the transformation that we are all aspiring to as we talk about carbon emission reductions. Let's make sure that we achieve those emission reductions while also maintaining reliability and affordability for our customers. It's optimizing those three things that'll really make the progress we're counting on. It's good to think that something positive came out of that uh, catastrophe in, in Texas. Thank you for, for running through that. Thinking about what the Sec Secretary Moniz said, we're really in the process of electrification uh, you made that point several times. You're in the electricity business, so that's good good news for you. There's a, a particular part of the electric transition that uh, has, has come to interest us here at The Post because we had a Washington Post Live session with Mark Royce, who's the president of General Motors and really is leading their effort for electric vehicles. And I was astonished by the extent to which GM is really betting its future as a company on its ability to make electric vehicles that are low cost, that have long distance capability, that have whole new battery uh, technologies. 
tell us what, from your perspective as a supplier of energy, you think is ahead. How quickly are we going to move to electric vehicles? How broadly based will they be? Um, how, how geographically broad based will they be? David, we're watching all of the trends that you're talking about. And at this point, we're looking at a variety of scenarios on how it could impact the amount of electricity that we sell in our regions. We're a bit behind, I, I would say California leading the charge on a state uh, basis. We have relatively modest adoption around our states, but we expect that to change. So we are doing a few things. Um, the first thing I would point to is we're working with all of our states to put in what I would call backbone infrastructure for charging, not only supporting customers who are buying vehicles to make sure they can charge at home, but also putting in a base level of infrastructure around travel corridors, in certain uh, commercial spaces and other places that could be logical for people to charge. We're also electrifying our own fleet. So we have quite a substantial fleet of not only light duty trucks, but medium and heavy duty trucks. And we've made a commitment to electrify all of the light duty by 2030 and are working with a number of suppliers on heavy and medium duty trucks to make sure we can make similar progress, at least 50% by 2030. And then the other thing we're doing is preparing the grid for what this may mean. It's a different form of um, demand for us. Typically, customers would charge at night. That's a great time for us because you know, we don't have as much demand on the system, but how can we incent customers to charge their vehicles at the right time? What kind of support would we wanna have in our infrastructure to enable uh, electric vehicles? So we're also making investments there, really trying to use data analytics to decide and think about where those investments should be made across our footprint. And I think it represents an extraordinarily important initiative because it's net zero for the whole economy, not just the electric industry and electrification will be an important part of that. So th this is a week uh, when Washington is talking about infrastructure, uh, transportation secretary Buttigieg was just the latest official to, to say he thinks there should be a significant commitment to infrastructure spending. And I'm curious what you as CEO of one of the nation's largest energy companies think about the, the specifics of what should be in an infrastructure package. What would you like to see it concentrate on? What do you think the needs as they pertain to your industry are that are most important? You know, David, I think the climate policy and priority of President Biden on climate should be a part of the thinking around infrastructure. Uh, EV infrastructure could be a part of that. That's certainly key to climate uh, and carbon reduction. I also think about permitting reform. I touched on that a moment ago. Uh, if you think about the scale of the transformation that we're talking about, the ability to permit and put infrastructure in place is gonna be really important. I think about just the renewables. In order for us to achieve our goal, we need to build about 1,500 to 1,600 megawatts of renewables every year for 30 years. And we built 3,000 megawatts over the last four years. So you think about the scale of that. And if I look at um, you know, all of Duke, we'll be spending uh, infrastructure money at a pace that is very significant compared to our history. So infrastructure and permitting support would be important. And then I would go again to research and development. Is there a way uh, to look at research and development as an important way for us to put investment into this climate policy uh, and into infrastructure policy so that we're prepared to make the investments to bring those uh, technologies to scale. 
You mentioned permitting a couple times in, in your remarks, uh, and it made me wonder if that issue needs to be more central in our discussion of, of climate change and the changes that are necessary. When we were uh, racing to develop vaccines uh, with Operation Warp Speed, one key thing was clearing some of the regulatory obstacles that have existed in the pharmaceutical industry to get the things that people needed more quickly. We need uh, measures to address climate change. Do you think dealing with permitting problems, obstacles should be part of that effort and how would you go about it? I think, David, it's a matter of bringing people ag together again and talking about what's necessary in order to move forward. And I, you know, you started the conversation with Secretary Moniz on offshore wind, an extraordinarily important resource, something that we feel strongly about and believe needs to be a part of the future. But in order to get offshore wind onshore, we're going to need to make transmission investments. And transmission is a very difficult um, form of infrastructure to build. And so I think, you know, as you think about our, our top line aspirations of net zero, let's get to the very um, concrete discussion of the enabling items like transmission, like um, infrastructure in the grid and uh, distribution grid. Let's talk about EV infrastructure. And let's talk about the enabling things necessary in order to make that happen. I think it's a matter of bringing people together and uh, looking at where the obstacles exist and seeing if we can find a way to move more quickly. In no way does this mean we step away from the importance of environmental stewardship as we permit infrastructure, but I do think there's a way that we can move more rapidly and perhaps uh, bring communities together uh, earlier in a process to make it move more smoothly. It's a fascinating ju juxtaposition of environmental objectives, desire for speed to deal with climate change, but a desire for caution and prudence to protect the environment. It'd be interesting to see how that how that uh, proceeds. Let me ask you, you've been uh, an advocate for thinking more about nuclear power. I'm of the generation that remembers Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, and so, you know, I still get nervous when I think about nuclear power. Tell me why I shouldn't be so nervous, why I should put that in my energy portfolio, if you will, uh, as I think about the future. David, I appreciate that question. Uh, Duke Energy is the largest operator of nuclear power in regulated markets in the U.S. We have 11 reactors in the Carolinas producing carbon-free energy every hour. Uh, it's about 50 to 60 percent of the energy in the Carolinas. And the safety record here in the U.S. is quite strong. And there is an incredible focus, investment, oversight, governance process to ensure that we're operating these assets with public safety in mind every hour of every day. And that commitment is unwavering. But as I think about bringing nuclear into the conversation that we've been having about climate, Duke Energy does not see a way to get to carbon reduction uh, at the speed that we need to achieve without nuclear energy. These plants run 95% of the time. So think about a foundation where 50% of the power is coming from carbon-free nuclear. Then you begin to talk about how can I add renewables, battery storage, and other things. So I would, I would look to the safety record here in the US. Uh, David is extraordinarily strong. The commitment is strong. The investment in this industry is strong. And frankly, I don't see a way for us to reach our carbon goals without nuclear being a part of the equation. So we have less than a minute to left. I'm going to ask you a quick question, but I'd, I'd love to know your answer. What should be on Secretary John Kerry's uh, agenda as he heads toward Glasgow? Name two or three things you think he really ought to emphasize in that me key meeting on climate change. 
I would love for him to emphasize the progress that the electric industry has made and the commitment that we have to the future. I believe that the goals that we've set um, at Duke Energy and for our industry are achievable, and you have the commitment of the industry to make it happen. So uh, it's great to have you with us. Really interesting discussion of the issues facing your company and your industry. Uh, Lynn, good, thanks for joining us today. David, thank you so much. A pleasure to be here. So uh, that's all the time we have for our program today. Please keep watching. At three o'clock uh, this afternoon, my colleague Ann Hornaday will be interviewing directors Pippa Ehrlich and James Freed about their Academy Award-nominated documentary uh, film, My Octopus Teacher. Uh, you can always head to Washington Post Live for, uh, uh, to register for our future programs. Please uh, stay with us. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.